As Jed said earlier, we're in Genesis 13. So we speed our way through the book of Genesis. So if you would turn there to Genesis 13, that would be great. And please listen carefully, because this is God's Word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word, for making us your people. Thank you for this church, this church family. Lord, it's good to be home. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us understanding, greater understanding of who you are, what you do, what you're like, the difference you can make in our lives. And may we see again as we study your word that it is profitable for us for reproof and correction and training and righteousness, and that we would have even more confidence in its authority. And for all of this, we need your grace, we need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. This November 10th, I will have been in ordained ministry for 20 years. And if you count the time I spent as a student supply pastor, since the beginning of June, I've been preaching for 20 years. Now, that's a long time. And other than demonstrating that I'm now old, it also means that I've seen a lot. Over the years, I've seen a lot of congregations, a lot in my congregations over the years. I've seen a lot in the people of my congregations over the years. And one of the things I've seen, which is both very hard and yet very good 
both at the same time, is seeing people become repentant. And sometimes you just know it. I see it on Sundays because I've seen so many people come and go. Sometimes people leave under bad circumstances because they want to go sin and do all sorts of things, usually things the pastors and elders have counseled them not to do. But they're convinced in their own mind that that's where they're going, that's what they're doing, and and that's what they really want. And so off they go. And later, sometimes years later, they come back. And often, and I don't know why, but often it's on a communion Sunday. And they come up in the line. And then they're coming to pray. And I'm the next one available to pray with. If you haven't been with us uh, on communion, uh, we have a group of uh, pastors and elders up front to pray with. And so they're coming up to pray, and I'm the next one available, and they walk up and they just look at you. And sometimes you can tell just by the look on their face. It's like they're somehow communicating, the last five years have been a disaster. But I'm back today. I'm back to where I started. I'm going to start where I left off. And in Genesis 13, that's what Abram does. And in this, you can see the kindness and patience of God to put up with all of this. The point is simply this. If you get into sin, don't keep going. If you make a mistake, don't persist in that direction out of pride, thinking, well, I'll fix it, I'll make it better, I'll show everybody, I'll get it together. Forget that. You know that doesn't work. You need to repent. You need to humble yourself and get out and go back to the last place you had a good day with God. For some of you, that may have been years ago that you had a good day with God. Whenever it was, Go back there. If you had your last great day with God reading the Gospel of John, then pick up your Bible, turn back to John, and pick up where you left off. If you had your last great day singing an old hymn, we sang one of the great ones this morning, How Firm a Foundation. I love that hymn. Well, pick up your Bible, find that hymn, go back to singing that hymn. If you had your last great day with God going to church, then come back to church. If you had your last great day with God with a Christian friend who spoke truth into your life, track them down, call them up, go back to them, sit across the table from them, ask them to bring you back to the place you originally were, from which you've strayed. And start again from that place that where you were supposed to start in the first place. So many people just keep going, just compounding sin upon error upon sin upon error. And here we see Abram humbles himself publicly and goes back to that place where he first worshipped God. Friends, sometimes you just got to go back where you started. Go back to that last great day with God. Start there and move forward from that place. (coughs) It's exactly what Abram does. That's the essence of repentance. And that's why he's such a great example for us in this chapter. He's not always a great example because just like us, he's a big sinner. But he becomes a great example because he's also a big repenter. And that's what we need to be, big repenters. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone our own way. We've all pursued our own agendas. We're just like Abram in defiance and unbelief. And God is patient and loving and gracious and kind. And he gives us the opportunity to repent and go back to the place where we had our last great day with him. And starting again from that place, in order to build new momentum from this day forward, so you can have additional great days with God and once again enjoy days of blessing. And the lifelong journey of faith in which Abram had already started receives yet another test in this passage. It receives a test in the challenge of dwelling with Lot and eventually separating from him. But in contrast to chapter 12, where we saw the uh, Abraham's uh, great sin, a sorry spectacle, his cowardice is apparent. In this passage, Abram passes his test with flying colors. We're going to look at four different scenes in the text today. So let's learn the lessons that God has for us here. And we'll start at the beginning, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, with the message that returning faith begins with worship. Returning faith begins with worship. Hopefully that's the first blank there in your outline. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So the first scene we find at the beginning of Genesis uh, 13, these verses we see Abram return to the land from Egypt. We see him return to God. He's on a pilgrimage and he returns to worship. And so in this very first scene, we get a very important truth. Returning faith begins with worship. As you see Abraham in, in, uh, in this passage, we're reminded, first of all, that God has blessed him just exceedingly, abundantly. He's made him rich in livestock. He's made him rich in silver and gold. And sometimes God does bless uh, his people abundantly, and he did with Abram. He gave him great riches, a sign of God's blessing. He's rich in livestock and silver and gold because of the Lord. But the main point of this passage is that Abram journeys through the Negev, which is that wilderness area to the south of Israel, all the way back to the place where he first camped when he first came to Canaan. And he does this because he's on a religious pilgrimage. One Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, says, the fact that Abram rose to the occasion in this passage is traceable to verses 1 through 4, which presents this journey to Bethel as a pilgrimage. Now, Bethel means the house of God. So he says he's returning to the house of God. And Abram is reversing the steps by which he had gone to Egypt and going back to that place where he had first come into the land and back to where he first called upon the Lord. I'm a little hoarse today, so you're going to have to bear with me. And the test of this chapter comes after worship. 
Now, if that isn't a proof of the means of grace which we can receive in worship, then I'm not sure I can find a good example for you. When we talk about the ministry of the Word preached and heard, prayer lifted up in the congregation, sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, uh, both administered and received, we talk about those things as means, as vehicles, as instruments by which God conveys His grace, His favor upon us. And in this passage, we see Abram go back and avail himself of worship. And he's done it after this grave failure in chapter 12. And immediately after this worship, he's going to face a very significant test in his own life. And I think we're being reminded that there's no more important preparation for spiritual conflict then worship, both public and private worship. I mean, haven't you found that out in your own experience? As I was looking at this passage, several incidents in my own life were called to mind, times where I was undergoing periods of uh, spiritual dryness, times where I felt far from the Lord, and I was far from the Lord. And then something happens to draw me back into fellowship with Him. And that time is almost always in the context of worship. And those times of worship would launch a new stage of devotion in my spiritual life. And I bet many of you could share stories just like that, where in the context of worship with God's people, somehow the Lord did business with you. Somehow He reached your heart and prepared you for things that were coming in your life. It's exactly what He does here in the life of Abram. Having a renewed faith in the context of renewed worship, means that God is preparing you for something that's coming in your life, something that you're probably not even aware of yet. And so that brings us to the second scene. It sets us up for the second scene. Returning faith often faces testing. Often faces testing, verses 5 through 7. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So now the test comes. First, we see the worship of Abram as he calls upon the name of the Lord. Whenever we hear that phrase in Genesis, it's referring to corporate worship. Stretches all the way back to the time of Seth. Corporate worship. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't do it in isolation. When Abram does that, he brings his whole family, uh, you know, all the kids, all the people who work for him, everybody comes together. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And we've come to the second scene in this passage. Here we see the strife that occurs between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. These are both great men. They have a great number of possessions. They have a great number of people on their payroll. They have a great deal of livestock. They have a lot of animals. They have so many animals, they can't comfortably live in the same area. There's not enough grazing land. And this overcrowding situation leads to strife, to conflict between Abram's men and Lot's men. And so they're in this precarious situation. 
And we're told at the end of verse 7, not only is there strife between Abram's men and Lot's men, but they're surrounded by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. These are two tribal groups that lived in the land of Canaan. And of course, if there's intertribal squabbling going on between Abram and Lot, that puts them in a vulnerable position in the presence of their enemies. And so Abram and Lot agree to separate. Now, I think it's very interesting here how God often uses apparently adverse circumstances, negative situations in our lives to advance his cause in us. Do you remember what God had told Abram to do when he first called him? Told him to separate himself from his country and from his father's house and from all his relations. And Abram had done that with all his relations to this point, except for one, Lot. Lot had been traveling everywhere with him. And so even though it seems sad that there's a division between these two kinsmen when their people can't get along, God's purpose is to separate Abram from Lot so he can do spiritual business with Abram. It is Abram through whom the line of the promise would come, not Lot. In fact, Lot is about to embark on a course which he would no doubt regret many years later. So God has brought this adverse circumstance into Abram's life, not for the purpose of annoying Abram or bothering him or forcing him to deal with this, but for the purpose ultimately of blessing Abram. Abram hadn't completely done what God had told him to do. And so God brings it about anyways. You know, you can do it the easy way or the hard way, but God's getting his way either way. Which brings us to the third scene, starting in verse 8, which is returning faith requires more trust. Returning faith requires more trust. Starting in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So here in verses 8 through 13, we see how the actual test plays out, how they go about deciding who's going to settle where, how they determine who gets what section of the land, and Abram rises to the occasion. We see his test in this passage. We see his trust in the Lord here. We see his triumph by faith, and these verses are a picture of faith confidently resting in God's promises. Look what happens here. First of all, Abram says to Lot, verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. And he goes on to give the reason why. He says, look, Lot, we're brothers. We're kinsmen. Let's not have this come between us. 
And Abram has exactly the right kind of attitude in the midst of this uh, conflict, of this adverse circumstance. He recognizes the importance of unity among brothers. His handling of this conflict is a model of uh, good sense and insight and generosity. And his reminder that we're brethren singles out the aspect that matters most in the face of an alien world. And his proposal is selfless and practical and resolved the tension without creating any new ones. And so what's his proposal? Very simply this, Lot, my nephew, younger one, the one who is not heir to the covenant promises, just choose the land you want. I'll take what's left over. You look out there and you decide where you'll go. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Your choice. You see something of Abram's nobility here. See, not only the generosity of his heart, but we see his trust in God by allowing Lot to choose the land. Lot's choosing the land is way out of the ordinary. It would most definitely be against the customs of the day. The elder member of the family would have the right to make the first choice. But Abram cedes that right. And then Lot chooses by sight. He sees land which is very fertile. The description is mind-boggling. This land is so fertile, it's like the Garden of God. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's this well-watered, fertile valley, and the soil is rich. But verse 13 tells us something else about that land. The land was good, but the boys were bad. When my girls were growing up, that was a mantra in my house. You can ask them. So Lot chooses by sight. And he hadn't chosen with spiritual interests in mind. Purely practical, what's the best land? And he's going to reap the consequences of his choice. His choice by sight places him in the vicinity of utter depravity. And Abram has faith that God's going to prosper him no matter what Lot chose. And he would, uh, that would prove to protect Abram from future sinful situations. Abram's not going to have to face because he trusted God at this point. Now, we can defer to our brothers and sisters in this life for the sake of peace. Be assured that God's going to take care of us anyway. This is not a good passage to remind us how to proceed with conflict, family conflict, deferring our own rights and trusting that God would take care of us. How many of you had to go through just that kind of circumstance? How many of you can testify that God's blessed you despite giving way to others? Many of you can because I've heard your stories. And that's the way of Abram. Again, listen to uh, Derek Kidner, uh, Old Testament scholar. He says, by faith, Abram had already renounced everything so he could afford here to refresh his choice. And so by faith, he opts for the unseen. He has no need to judge as Lot did by sight. He judges by faith and trusts that God would provide him with everything that God had promised. And God does exactly that. He reaffirms his promises to Abram and Abram goes back to the beginning. He continues to worship, verses 14 to 18. Returning faith continues to worship. This is the fourth scene in this passage. And here now, after Lot is separated from Abram, God confirms his promises to Abram. The language you see here sounds very similar 
to the language of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. God reiterates his promise to Abram that he would give Abram a land and he would give Abram descendants. But remember, at this point, Abram doesn't own any land in Canaan yet, and he doesn't have any descendants yet. So once again, God has made him a promise that demands he take God at his word, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Isn't that the way of saving faith? So often God asks him to trust him. He asks us to trust him when there is no sight, when we can't see what God's promising, when we have no evidence that this will actually happen. And in this passage, we see Abram continuing in the pattern that we've seen since we were introduced to him. Remember, Abraham dwelled in a tent, and he built the Lord on altar. Tent is temporary, and altar is permanent. And we see that again in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, Derek Kidner says, tent and altar characterize Abram's way of life. See, he's a nomad, but God is his permanent and sure refuge. So everywhere he went, the worship of the Lord, the calling on the name of the Lord is central to Abram's life. While Abram has no wood on his own roof, he builds altars to the Lord while he was dwelling in tents. We see again how God's promises prompt us to worship him. God reveals himself here and speaks to Abram again. And what's the response of Abram? Once again, he responds with worship. That's how this chapter begins and ends. Begins with worship. There's a test, a trial, a triumph. It ends with worship. God calls us to be his people in order to worship him. There's nothing more central to our Christian experience than worship. But isn't it interesting that, you know, worship, we come to empty ourselves of praise and, and to give to God, and we come with an attitude uh, desiring to pour out our hearts to him and to ascribe to him glory and honor and praise, and yet we get back the blessing. Abram worships God at the beginning of Genesis 13, and what does God do? He strengthens him for the test. He speaks to Abram, and Abram comes back to the Lord in worship. But God's already gone before Abram, or before his worship, giving him yet another revelation of himself, another reaffirmation of his divine promises, because you can't outgive God. When you come to the Lord in worship, you always, if you come with a humble attitude, desiring to ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name, to praise him and to thank him for all that he's done for you, you cannot possibly give more than you receive from the Lord. So in this passage, we see the deeds of faith begin with worship because God's called us to be worshiping people. 
It's the very center of our experience. That's why it's so perverse biblically when men will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ because God made us to be worshipers above all else. Worship is what enables us to live out the faith, to do the deeds of faith. Then we see in the second scene, verses 5 through 7, God brings separation. If we don't fall in the way of separating ourselves from the world, God loves us so much, he'll bring that separation about all by himself. So where Abram hasn't separated himself from his family, God gives him a little nudge. He helps him out a little bit. He has spiritual business that he needs to do with Abram. He needs to get him apart. We go to the third scene, verses 8 through 13, picture of trust. We see what it means to trust, to rest in God's promises, to trust that God will do what he promised to do. And we see God speaking to Abram, and then uh, finally Abram responds at the end of the chapter in worship once again. This should be an encouragement to us. In each of these scenes, we see patterns which still remain, except now they're greater because we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in his modeling of faith, but living and dying on our behalf. So we're called to worship him, the risen Christ. It's our first priority. Everything in the Christian church culminates in worshiping him, and from that worship flows every other aspect of the Christian life, whether it's fellowship or learning, or service, or outreach. You stop worshiping, it's a matter of time till all those other things go away as well. God still calls us to separate. God's call to Abraham is to separate and to follow him. Jesus' call to his disciples is to separate and follow him. And in this passage, we see Abram trusting God, resting in his promises. Jesus requires exactly the same thing from his followers. But notice one thing here. Throughout the, the life of Abraham, and we got a lot more to go in Abraham's life, it's not one huge life-changing decision or action on the part of Abram, but it's a series of decisions, a series of choices that end up ultimately changing his life. And many choices in life are just like that. At that time, uh, you make them, they don't seem all that significant. But those choices set in motion a series of events which shape our lives and the lives of your children and the lives of your grandchildren. If we could uh, all share how we all came to know Christ as Savior, I guess that many of you would choose, uh, would say that you chose to go somewhere where you met someone who started talking to you, which led to a chain of events resulting in your salvation. The original choice wasn't a big deal but the outcome is life-changing. If we share those of us who are married, how we met our mates. Many of the stories would begin with some seemingly insignificant decision to attend some social event. And that decision led to a relationship which forever affected our lives, not to mention our children. But sometimes people make unwise choices, which at the time don't seem to be all that momentous, but lead to tragedy. A teen might choose to ride with a friend who's been drinking, and it results in a serious accident. A girl decides to uh, start drinking at a party and lets down her inhibitions and ends up pregnant or with an STD. Seemingly small decisions can have momentous consequences. So how do we protect ourselves from making bad choices? Well, you see here the story of Lot. 
in Genesis 13 teaches us a crucial lesson about making life's choices. The herdsmen of Lot and Abraham are quarreling because there isn't enough land to support all their flocks. So Abram gave Lot his choice of where to settle. Lot surveys the land, decides to move down to the lush Jordan Valley, says it looks like the Garden of God. And it, But it's the beginning. That choice is the beginning of Lot's gradual but steady spiritual decline. Because first he looks towards Sodom, verse 10. Then he moves his tents near Sodom, verse 12. The next time we come back and find Lot in chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. And finally we'll come up with Lot again in chapter 19. And he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. That is, he's now a city official. And in the end, he'll lose his wife. He'll barely escape with his life and his two daughters. And he goes off the Old Testament page, hiding in a cave where his daughters get him drunk and commit incest with him. And the offspring of these disgraceful nights are the Moabites and the Ammonites, two of Israel's perennial enemies. And it all begins with Lot's choice to live near Sodom. You know, we tend to think of Christian commitment as one big, bold decision to forsake everything and follow Jesus. And there's a sense, of course, in which that's true. We have to make a once-for-all commitment. Lot had done that. He left his family and friends in Ergo with Abram to the Promised Land. But his problem, like many Christians today, is in following through, walking step by step, uh, being dependent upon the Lord, saying no to the things of the world based upon his faith and the promises of God. Someone once said, I couldn't find who originally said this, but it wasn't me, but I liked it. So someone once said, we tend to think of commitment to Christ like laying a $1,000 bill on the table. Here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But the reality is the Lord sends most of us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 bill for bags of quarters. And then we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there in small deeds of faithfulness and obedience. But it's right there in those little 25-cent decisions that our lives take their direction. Here in Genesis 13, after having so obviously sinned, Abram heads back to Bethel. As I said, Bethel means the house of God. 2, verses 3 and 4, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, to the place where he made an altar at the first. In both Genesis 12 and 13, we see two things mark Abram's life of faith, the tent and an altar. The tent shows him to be a pilgrim, one just passing through on his way to another destination, but the altar shows Abram to be a worshiper of the living and true God. The altar also, as is permanent, as he has to leave it there, bears witness to the godless Canaanites of the true God and of their own idolatrous ways. Abram left Egypt and came back to the tent and the altar. And to call on the name of the Lord means to worship and trust God for who he is, the righteous yet merciful sovereign who faithfully keeps his promises even when we're faithless. And what Abram did, we need to do. 
especially when we've disobeyed God and strayed from his past. We need to return to our beginning place with God. And where is that for the Christian? It's at the cross. And we kneel there and remember the great price the Lord paid for our forgiveness. And we call on his name and his attributes, his love, his holiness, his grace, his faithfulness. And we reestablish the communion we formerly enjoyed with him. And we're invited there frequently to confess our sins and appropriate God's forgiveness. If you are straying from the Lord right now, He invites you to come back to the cross and be restored to fellowship with Him. You've been there before. It's time to go back. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, here you show so much grace to Abram. And we so much want you to show the same grace to us, especially when we sin. And there's a lot of sin in our lives. There's sin in what we do, sin in what we say, sin in what we think. Sometimes it can seem like there's this dark sin cloud hanging over us. But then you gave us Jesus. And he took all that sin on himself at the cross. He paid the penalty for that sin at the cross. Lord, take us back to the cross. Show us what the cost of our sin really is. Show us what true forgiveness really looks like. Show us Jesus and move us to respond with worship. Lord, here you are again showing grace to the undeserving to us. Lord, we thank you that no one's beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not uh, ourselves beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.